Oh, man. You made friends with him. Well, it was fun. Because they make you feel cool. And hey, I met you. You are not cool. I know. Even when I thought I was, I knew I wasn't. Because we are uncool. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and welcome back to Origins Chapter 6, Almost Famous Turns 20. This is Episode 2, Cameron Crowe Unmasked. Is it that hard to make us look cool? In Episode 1, we shined our imaginary spotlight on the tricky business of casting the movie. Now, in Episode 2, we'll boldly step backwards into the origins of the filmmaker himself. We'll look at Cameron Crowe's childhood, his upbringing, and his professional life before Almost Famous. We'll travel the long road that Cameron traveled, though we'll do it in less time, and retrace the writing of the script. And of course, the rewriting. Kate Hudson, Francis McDormand, Billy Crudup, Jason Lee, Patrick Fugit, and others will help as well. So as they say in too many movies, let's do this. Cameron Crowe was born on July 13, 1957, in Palm Springs, California, and was raised in San Diego, where his father James sold residential real estate and his mother Alice taught sociology and English literature at the local college. Recognizing that Crow was gifted, his mother pushed and inspired him to excel. He skipped kindergarten and two grades in elementary school. And when he attended University of San Diego High School, he was quite obviously younger than the other students. It is perhaps hard to imagine how the band that gave us the 17-minute psychedelic rock dirge Inagata De Vida could inspire a man who has become a touchstone for all things musical cool. But so it was, when Cameron won tickets from a local radio station to see Iron Butterfly for his first concert, his fate was largely sealed. Rock would be a major part of his life, despite the fact that it had been banned from the Crow home by his parents, who weren't fans. His own performing aspirations started, and pretty much ended, with a band called The Masked Hamster. But by the age of 13, he was writing for the school newspaper and simultaneously contributing music reviews to an underground publication, The San Diego Door. Crucially, a previous editor of The Door was legendary music critic Lester Bangs, and he and Cameron corresponded while Bangs edited the national rock magazine Cream in Detroit. After forming a relationship with Bangs and continuing to practice his craft, Cameron submitted articles to Cream, Crawdaddy, Music World, Circus, the Los Angeles Times, Playboy, and Penthouse. He found time to graduate high school in 1972 at age 15. Then, on a trip to Los Angeles, he met Ben Fong Torres, the celebrated editor of Rolling Stone, and Cameron joined the staff there soon after. He wrote profiles of such influential figures as Bob Dylan, David Bowie, Neil Young, Eric Clapton, and the members of Led Zeppelin. His experience as a 15-year-old correspondent for the magazine would become the basis of Almost Famous. Almost Famous begins in San Diego, the seaside city where Cameron Crowe grew up. But it wasn't just any old place in San Diego. The exact location would prove to be one of the great gifts of his upbringing. Therein, as you may have suspected, lies a tale. I asked Cameron how his family's address created a port of entry for his love of music. A lot of it happened right across the street from the Old Globe Theater. We lived on 6th Avenue, and it was right across the street from the park. And we had the basement apartment that was next to the laundry room, 
which was slightly bigger than some of the other apartments and it had like a door that went out into a garden area so it was an apartment but it was also there was some world you could disappear out into but the cool thing was all the actors would also stay at this apartment house so my mom told me that Christopher Walken was always there doing his laundry next door, which I think I remember him. <laughs> but all the guys playing Shakespeare and stuff would live in this apartment house, the Antoinette Apartments. But it felt like an artsy little world there, though we were coming off an experience growing up with my sister. My family kind of split off into a couple different directions at that point. But I was living there mostly with my mom. My dad was going back and forth from the desert, Palm Desert, where he worked, doing answering service work. He owned a couple answering services. And my sister moved down the street on 6th, and she had already started being a flight attendant. So that whole 6th Street, 6th Avenue area became like my kind of playground. And music started to seep in because... I would hear music through my sister, obviously. Concerts would happen in the neighborhood, which I could walk to. Then I had to beg to be able to go to them. But, like, the Allman Brothers Band came and played in my neighborhood. Oh, my God. Yeah, at the Civic Theater. Elton John played at the Civic Theater. I remember before that, you know, Dick Cavett had the musicians who'd played Woodstock on his show. And, and since Dick Cavett was like an authorized intellectual in our home, you know, I was able to stay up late and watch these musicians that had just come from Woodstock. So how old are you at this time? 12. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Joni Mitchell, to me, not having been at Woodstock, but in the Dick Cavett show, having come from the hotel where she wrote Woodstock, not having been invited to actually go because the boys took the helicopter, she stayed in this hotel wrote Woodstock and joined them later at the Dick Cavett show. And I remember watching that clip and seeing her laughing at all the funniest jokes, you know, not as high as everybody else, beautiful. The song she sang, unbelievable. And that was one of the first imprinting things. It's like this Joni Mitchell, that is the world standard, you know. A woman like this is everything. And a woman know? who can capture the very essence of the festival without even having been there. It's just the best. I mean, that tells you exactly who she is and the environment that she came out of. At 15, Cameron Crowe had the best of both worlds, maybe more than two. He was able to write about the enduring passion of his young life, music, and getting paid to do so. What were some of the cast members of Oma's Famous doing at the same tender age? Funny you should ask. When did the acting light bulb go off for you? Oh, geez. I mean, I grew up in this business, you know? I, I mean, heard that. I, I, <laughs> it's like I came out, my nature is to perform. So whatever that DNA is that I really, I really do believe it's a DNA thing because now I see it in some of my kids more than other kids. That just innate natural ability to want to perform. So I came out like, you know, when my mom says like doing high kicks and but I knew, I don't think there's any part of my brain that ever thought I'd do anything but be in the film industry or in performance-oriented industry. So whether it be a singer or on Broadway or... And it just was like, almost like that's just it. There was no question mark for me. Even if the success didn't amount to what it did, I'd still be doing something in the performing arts. 
What were you doing when you were 15? <laughs> Come on, well, confess. <laughs> I'm only going to confess to the good shit, which was I was seeing Marvin Gaye at Reunion Arena with uh, the Isley Brothers opening for him. It was the sexual healing tour. Wow. And my girlfriend, Cindy Thomas, was super into soul. And she said, we've got to see Marvin Gaye. My dad took us and I think her name was Catherine McComas, her friend. And so the four of us were sitting on the floor at Reunion Arena watching Marvin Gaye come down in a purple robe saying, get up, get up, get up. It was, by the way, that was the coolest part of me. The, the rest of it was... Um, I got to tell you, that's a pretty <laughs> impressive answer. I was not expecting that. I wasn't expecting it either, but wow. I... I <laughs> <laughs> I got to come up with something good uh, if I'm talking uh, about Cameron Crowe. Jason Lee played lead singer Jeff Beebe. Skateboarding in Huntington Beach, California. Yeah, that was around the time when I uh, I had gotten skateboards in the 70s as a kid, and then I had gotten another sort of store-bought, you know, department store-bought skateboard in, in when I was about 13, but it was 15 when I really started skateboarding every single day. And then would go on to somehow become a professional skateboarder relatively shortly thereafter. So so tell me about the transition from skateboarding to acting. Uh, well, I was about 21 or so. I was still a pro skater. And I had some friends because I was living up in Los Angeles at that time. And I had some friends that were actors. And I was watching a lot of films at that time on VHS. And uh, I just was kind of interested in this, you know, what would it be like to be behind the camera? What's it like to be on a set? I, I had very naive kind of thoughts about it. I was really curious about the process of movie making. What's it like being on a set? What do the cameras look like? What would it be like to play a character, wardrobe, the whole thing? And uh, through those friends that I had, I was able to start taking some meetings and very poorly auditioning for uh bit parts on TV shows and whatnot. And then I found a way in through a very good friend of mine, a way into uh, Don Phillips, the casting director of Mallrats, Kevin Smith's second film. And he was kind enough to let me come back and read for Kevin Smith. And somehow I got that part. And then I worked on another Kevin Smith film called Chasing Amy. And it was actually that film that would ultimately lead to me getting almost famous. Zoe Deschanel played Anita Miller. When I was 15, I was very studious and very focused. All I did was study and do theater. I was extremely focused on what I wanted to do in life. And I was very good. <laughs> I didn't sneak out or do really anything bad. I was extremely, extremely focused. <laughs> and I was a straight-A student. Here's Frances McDormand. I am not an Alice. For my son, I'm an Alice. But in my heart, I'm rock and roll. I really wanted to be a character that went on the road. I wanted to be William. I wanted to go on the road with a rock band. So to be the one that was discouraging someone to go on the road with a rock band was a real stretch for me, as it were. So, back to Cameron. My mom invited Dick Gregory to come and speak at her class. 
Dick Gregory and I ran in the park the morning after he appeared in her class. So she was kind of introducing me to like serious social figures, you know, and my sister was starting to work at an underground paper, Nixon's Lucky City was San Diego. At that point, the uh, Republican convention was coming to San Diego. John Lennon sent a song called Going to San Diego that he'd written with Allen Ginsberg to the underground paper where I was kind of, you know, hanging out around my sister. So this was my mom's worst nightmare, really, that like counterculture, dope smoking, all that stuff that she had worked really hard to like, you know, weed out of our, no pun intended, out of my young life. It was finding me, you know, and pulling me there. And that was the San Diego door, where ultimately I just was like, if I review these records, do I get these free records here to take home and own? Yes? Okay, I'm a rock writer. <laughs> and that's kind of how it started. Imagine for a moment or two that you are Peter Frampton, and it's 1976. You've just finished putting the final flourishes on the most important album of your career. Frampton Comes Alive. When you get word that a nationally known rock journalist is coming to your studio to preview the album in a private session. If he likes what he hears, he will write the liner notes for you. You're understandably excited and a little apprehensive at the thought of some distinguished rock veteran coming by to judge your work. We had finished mixing Frampton Comes Alive and there was a suggestion from management that we look out this young upstart <laughs> very, very clever writer who was younger than he knew himself at the time. So I believe, I'm not sure, but I think he was about 16 at that time, but he was already working for Rolling Stone and the buzz about Cameron was phenomenal. So my management put us in touch and um, he came to the studio and uh, we played him the first person to hear comes alive outside the band and producing and engineers and management basically so so he came in and listened to it and loved it and said he'd love to do the liner notes and that's how we first met before we ever did an interview really that's incredible do you remember his uh, writing back then I, mean, I saw the liner notes Nothing about them suggests that a 16-year-old was writing that, of course. No, no, because he didn't know he was that young. <laughs> I keep going back to that in the movie. Mom, when are you going to tell him how old he really is? <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, I loved his band Frampton's Camel. They had kind of a George Harrison kind of sincerity and soul, and his guitar playing is fantastic. I mean, Bowie years later, said, I need that guy to play guitar on my tour. He's a magnificent guitarist. And I loved Humble Pie, too, and had written about them. But he was at the A&M Studios, and he was like, come and listen to my new album, and let's talk about it. I'm not sure what it is, but it's live, and it's the best recording of me, the way you get me when you see me at a concert. And let's listen. And we sat in the A&M studio and, and listened to it, and it was... You know, it was as striking as you'd think. Like, do you feel like we do? It was like endless and glorious and amazing. And he's the sweetest guy in the world. He was just proud sitting there. And the fucking avalanche of pop culture was, <laughs> was about to, uh, you know, come down all around him or sweep him into this next whole phase of his life. Neil Preston, 
then 20, first met Cameron Crowe, then 15, at a rock concert, naturally, in 1972. Both of them were on assignment in San Diego for Rolling Stone, and both would attend, and chronicle, many another rock concert in the years ahead. Cameron handling the words, Neil the pictures. Neil was forging a career as a first-rate photographer of rock stars, and the big names he would bag with his camera included Bruce Springsteen, Michael Jackson, and Whitney Houston, among others, as well as supergroups like Led Zeppelin, Queen, The Who, Fleetwood Mac, and many more. Neil and Cameron not only worked together, they lived together as roommates for a time and became close friends. They toured with the Allman Brothers Band, Crow working overtime to land an interview with Greg Allman. When Cameron got the green light for Almost Famous, he asked Neil to be the film's still photographer, an adventure that Preston documented with his virtuoso camera. And yes, he remembers it well. He had a love of the music. He always did his homework. He has a way of drawing stuff out of people that you would think people are shut down and would not give it up. But Cameron has a way of making it okay for people to tell him the real stuff. I think the first tour we were on together was the Allman Brothers. Cameron told me that you bore witness to some interesting times between him and Greg. Oh, yes. Including the story about the tapes, the which tapes. I hope you'll tell. Yeah, the tapes. Now, keep in mind, Greg Allman was a god to us, okay? He's chasing Greg around for the key interview. He's talked to Chuck, and he's talked to Lamar, the bass player. He's talked to Dickie. He's talked to Butch and J-Mo, and and he had had a brief interview, I believe, in Phoenix with Greg. It was almost like a pre-interview interview. And Greg had a couple of vials on the end table, and he was playing acoustic guitar, and he was passing the vials around. And, and as I like to say, the journalist, Cameron, would politely decline, yet the photographer would politely accept. <laughs> So this planted a little seed in Greg's mind that, hmm, why won't that kid get buzzed with us? Buzzed, you, you know what I mean. Why wouldn't he get fucked up with us? But he still needed the key interview. And, you know, days are going by, days are going by. And finally, at the Miyako Hotel in San Francisco, he gets the call. Greg's ready to talk. So he's excited, brings his tape recorder, a bunch of tapes, blank tapes. I go up there. We walk in, Greg is like sprawled out on this couch. I shoot some pictures of him, which P.S., one of them ended up on Greg's autobiography years later, like 40 years later. So I shoot some pictures, I leave them alone. I go back down to the room, and a couple hours later, he comes down and we do the recap. He says, oh my God, Greg, incredible interview. He was out there, he was... He was telling us everything. You know, it was fantastic. In the middle of this, the phone rings. I pick up the phone, hello? And the voice on the other end says, hey, man, this is Red Dog, one of the roadies. I said, hey, it's Neil. He said, is your little buddy there? I said, yeah. I hand Cameron the phone. He listens. And the blood kind of drains out of his face. And he hangs up and he says, they want me to go back upstairs and bring all the tapes. Greg thinks I'm a cop or something. I don't remember if he said that then or 10 minutes later, but what are you going to do? Gets all his tapes and puts them in this brown paper bag. He goes up there. He's up there for a while. Comes back down ashen-faced. 
no paper bag. He said Greg took all the tapes because he was paranoid, to say the least. He was, you know, under the influence, and he was convinced his brother, Dwayne, was in the room with them and telling him he was a cop. You know, at this point, I'm listening, and I take my shot film, and I put it under the mattress just in case they want my film. You know, because that way I could say, hey, it's at the lab. <laughs> anyway, this is not good because there goes the story without the tapes. I mean, this is the key interview with the main guy, brother of Dwayne, the, the Almond's biggest band in America, and the big, big deal interview, which Cameron says was phenomenal, is up in Greg's room. God knows what's going to happen. So I do know that the next day or two, many phone calls ensued. It was determined that, oh, yeah, Greg just happened to find these tapes, you know. Of course he'd get them back. He doesn't know how he got them. Only problem was the band had already checked out to fly to Honolulu, where they had the last gig of their tour. And Cameron had to get back home. I mean, we, we'd been away over a week, and the story was hanging in the balance. And finally Cameron said, Phil Walden, just call me, and we're going to get the tapes back, but someone's got to go to Honolulu to get the tapes. Well, the only person available to go to Honolulu to get the tapes was yours truly. So I grabbed my cameras, I got on a plane, I flew to Honolulu, I go backstage, and I got the tapes from, I'm pretty sure it was Willie Perkins, who was their tour manager, and they were in the same brown paper bag that clearly hadn't even been opened, much less had the tapes been listened to. And I shot the best fucking show of the tour. It was phenomenal. I think it was an outdoor gig at Blaisdell Arena. And um, flew back with the tapes, thereby saving the story. And and then some book came out. Greg wrote a book saying, oh, we never did. We were just kidding around with the kid. We gave him to him in the lobby of the Miyako. And Dickie wrote a book saying he gave me back the tapes. Or, you know, it's like 39 people gave me the tapes. I always thought that chasing down Greg was part of what inspired William chasing down Russell. In Absolutely. The, in the movie. Absolutely. But we were in it for the love of it. And Cameron was such a good interviewer, far more than his years would dictate. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. We are not groupies. This is Penny Lane, man. Show some respect. Groupies sleep with rock stars because they want to be near someone famous. We're here because of the music. We are Band-Aids. She used to run a school for Band-Aids. We don't have intercourse with these guys. We inspire the music. We're here because of the music. Penny Trumbull, an only child, born and raised in Portland, Oregon, was the primary inspiration for the character Penny Lane in Almost Famous. The real Penny had two abiding passions in her youth. One was horses and the other rock and roll. 
Penny began rocking in the early 70s, and it was then that she chose the nickname Penny Lane, in part homage to a Beatles tune the men tended to serenade her with. Soon, she was backstage and offstage, on a first-name basis, with many a rock star and stashing her car in airport parking lots when bands invited her along to venues on private jets. Cameron Crowe met Penny in 1973 and immortalized her in Almost Famous. How were you able to negotiate with your parents the opportunity to go out and start attending concerts and fall in love with live performance? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked that question. That was a good story. I never realized then that I could have been a really good spy because I started leading a double life around age 16. And it was the only way that I could figure out how to have my life and not hurt my parents or disappoint them in any way because I really cared about my family. So I got my driver's license, and I started going to concerts, mainly by myself, sometimes with girls from the barn, but mainly by myself. Because my parents were really sick and tired. Every weekend they had to drive me to horse shows because I was really competitive and I wanted to hopefully someday make the Olympic team. So they gave me the keys to the truck and the trailer on my 16th birthday and they said they never wanted to go to another horse show ever again. So in a way, they set me free. And wow, did I see a lot of good bands. At some point, you crossed the proverbial Rubicon and and went from just somebody in the audience to somebody who was actually being able to interact with the musicians and the whole behind-the-curtain culture. So how did you engineer that? Well, well, it was really kind of a miracle, actually. I met a musician with a famous band, and he was with Steppenwolf, and he flew me down to L.A. for the weekend. Yes, I did say I was going to a horse show, and yes, I loaded up the horses, took them to a friend's ranch over in Vancouver, Washington, and I unhooked the trailer, and I drove to the airport and jumped on their private plane to go to L.A. So we did have a lot of fun that weekend. But that guy taught me a lot about concerts, about groupies, getting backstage, drugs and alcohol. And I flew back Sunday afternoon with my virginity intact and picked up the truck and trailer and gave my mom and dad a big kiss when I got home. But two very important things really came out of that weekend. I had to think about this because I knew I had an airtight alibi to start traveling with bands by using the horses. I just had to figure out a way to get home by 6 p.m. Sunday night, do all my chores, keep up my grades and appearances, and not tell anybody. And the second thing was, after what he told me about what girls had to do to get backstage, I had to really think about, you know, what he said to me, and I had to figure out a better way than the usual to get the keys to the castle with the backstage passes, the dressing rooms, the after parties and invitations to go to the next town. How did he present the uh, bill of particulars in terms of uh, what was required? You're 18 years old. What was he saying to you? Well, he just said that, you know, sometimes girls do unusual sex acts to get a backstage pass. Sometimes they, you know, sleep with promoters. Sometimes they do this. Sometimes they do that. Sometimes the bands just invite them. They've seen them in the audience, and they have somebody go out and grab them and take them to the parties. Right. That was pretty much it. I mean, he didn't name names or anything. I didn't know anybody, so it didn't matter. But it was kind of a quid pro quo, transactional kind of... You know, sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. I think the most beautiful girls always got asked. But a lot of those girls were were there. They just showed up and they knew what to do and they didn't have a problem with it. 
if they did have a problem with it, they probably wouldn't have done it. But I think the trade-off, they thought it was there, but nobody had a gun to their head forcing him to go and be with that rock star. The rock stars just stood there and they didn't do anything. So the girls just kind of showed up. But I figured out a better way. What was your better way? Well, I'm not going to give away all my trade secrets, but it was really good. (laughs) And it was a business solution to this problem. And it was about learning what people needed backstage to make it work better and how I could help them reach that goal. I saw a Lester Banks quote where he said he had to drive by the house of the girl that broke my heart, which I'm going to admit that I actually have done. Yeah, baby. I would worry about you if you hadn't driven past that house. Something we all must do. Enables you to understand Russian literature and half of what Joni Mitchell wrote about. So please leave that in. (laughs) Don't cut yourself out. I think it's so poetic that Lester said that. And I just want to give people a sense from you of Lester Banks, your life without Lester Banks. You don't meet Lester Banks. How dramatic is that? How significant is that? I think Ben Fong Torres and even Jan Wenner were probably more hands-on, mentorish people in my life, for sure. I think to a certain degree, I was like a gnat that Lester enjoyed swatting away. That was more our relationship than, you know, buddy, let's sit down and go over every sentence of what you wrote. We had a simpatico because we came from San Diego. He made me laugh. And I think I made him laugh. But what he did was give me respect. And he gave me the uh, we're in this together feeling, which is a thrill. Because if you're a young guy, you know, this is the first meeting I had as a director for Say Anything was with Robert Wagner. As soon as I got a director job, my agent, Judy Scott Fox, says, I'm going to set you up with RJ. I'm like, who's RJ? It's like Robert Wagner. I'm like, holy shit, Robert Wagner? She's like, yeah, you'll go to this restaurant. You'll sit with Robert Wagner. So I meet Robert Wagner. I'm totally nervous. He leans across the table at some point early in the meeting, and he goes, because you know how it is with our business. And I was like, our business He just included me in the entire history of filmmaking. And Robert fucking Wagner said, our business. I wanted to call everybody I knew because he said, our business. That was Lester. Lester said, our business to me, essentially. He said, you and I are in this together. You and I are journalists. Let's bullshit. Let's crack at each other. Let's be tough. Let's laugh at each other. I don't think he said, I want to mentor you. And that was Lester because his writing voice is tough. He takes no prisoners, but he also has a big romantic heart in those stories. And I met the guy with heart that first day on the street in San Diego. And, you know, first day of filming, if I'm not mistaken, too, was the same place where I first met him. So that was beautiful. I also felt that Lester needed more love from people. And I'm really grateful to the film and to Philip Seymour Hoffman for bringing people to Lester's writing. Because, you know, I think there were other writers like Greil Marcus and stuff that kind of had a bigger profile at the time that Lester died. But I think we needed to put a little bit of a crown on Lester's head, even if he didn't want it. Cameron regularly returned to his rock roots penning liner notes for albums by Led Zeppelin, 
The Eagles, Joni Mitchell, David Bowie, Peter Frampton, and Leonard Skinner. He was nominated for a Grammy for his work on Bob Dylan's Biograph box set. Cameron Crowe's filmography before Almost Famous is nothing if not auspicious. In 1977, Rolling Stone moved its offices from the West Coast to New York, but Crowe decided to stay behind in L.A. He made a brief appearance in a 1978 film called American Hot Wax, then quickly returned to writing, continuing to freelance for Rolling Stone in the years ahead. He also found time to work on his first book about teens growing up in the late 70s. To research it further, Cameron, at the age of 22, went undercover as a senior at Claremont High School. The book, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, became a bestseller and was optioned for the screen by Universal Pictures, with Crowe signed to write the script. Released in the summer of 82 and directed by Amy Heckerling, Fast Times became one of the year's biggest hits and helped launch the careers of Sean Penn, Jennifer Jason Lee, Judge Reinhold, Forrest Whitaker, Nicolas Cage, and Eric Stoltz. Crowe's screenplay was nominated for a Writers Guild of America Award for Best Screen Adaptation, and the movie still stands as a touchstone of its time and the generation it portrays. His next Hollywood endeavor was the script for The Wildlife, about four teenagers living in a single apartment complex immediately after high school, starring Eric Stoltz, Leah Thompson, Hart Bachner, and Christopher Penn. Later, in 1989, Crowe made his feature film directorial debut with his original screenplay, Say Anything, the story of an offbeat loner, John Cusack, who goes after the beautiful class brain of his school, Ioni Sky. Well-received by audiences and critics alike, the film was not a hit upon release, but has since become a cult success on home video and TV. The image of John Cusack holding a boombox over his head has become a pop culture icon. Cameron's second movie as director, also set in Seattle, was the 1992 romantic comedy, Singles. The film featured strong performances from an ensemble cast that includes Bridget Fonda, Matt Dillon, Kira Sidgwick, and Campbell Scott, as well as a cameo appearance by three members of Pearl Jam. 1996 was the level jump in Cameron's career. Jerry Maguire, starring Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger, was released to strong box office and later five Oscar nominations, including Best Original Screenplay for Cameron and Best Picture. Cuba Gooding Jr. took home the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Cameron also received a nomination from the Directors Guild of America for Outstanding Directorial Achievement of a Feature and copped the Penn Literary Award for Best Screenplay that year. I had definitely fallen in love with directing on Jerry Maguire and then talking to Billy Wilder had just really kind of emboldened me and also I had been studying all those great little Lubitsch Wilder comedic moments. So is that to say that the Wilder book really kind of influenced the filming of Almost Famous? Yeah, and we talk about it in the book. I am starting to uh, know what Almost Famous is going to be and talk to Wilder about it a little bit. He's not impressed <laughs> in the book. He's just, he, I'll tell you, I never went to film school. I went to actually journalism school. And that was working at Rolling Stone, too. I consider that kind of journalism school. The Wilder book was film school. So I felt like having, all made, <laughs> yeah, having made Jerry Maguire, I wanted to go to film school with Billy Wilder. So the book was a little bit of a chance for me to tell him what his work meant. Introduce him to filmmakers and stuff like Sam Mendes and everything. We'd just like introduce him to people. It was just great. But the point of all this was um, we were out at dinner one night and he said, so when is this going to be published? 
And I said, well, soon. We're getting pretty close. We're getting pretty close. And he said, you know, if this was all for you, that's okay, too. And that was so moving. Riding high on Jerry Maguire's crest of success, Cameron turned his energies not to a brand new project, but to a film he'd been bouncing around in his brain for ages, a movie about music. In fact, in one of the early drafts of Almost Famous, there happens to be a character named Jerry Maguire. Side note, Cameron has been known to go through old yearbooks from various schools, searching for names that call out to him. Jerry Maguire came from one of those yearbooks. An early draft of Almost Famous was titled Ricky Fedora. At another point, the script was called Untitled, because, Cameron reasoned, this was his fourth movie as a director, and Led Zeppelin had titled their fourth album, Untitled. So in your mind, is it possible that at least the idea of Almost Famous was with you all those years? My dad was working real hard, but he was in on a lot of these conversations. He was a big fan of a certain tone that in the movies that I loved and that he loved and that we would discuss, there was a happy, sad quality. And my mom was a real fan of Mike Nichols. And Mike Nichols and Elaine May, those comedy records, those were big in our house growing up. That and Ray Charles sings country and western. So there was this kind of beautiful taste for music and comedy in the house. Just rock felt like totally exploitive. And she was right, (laughs) you know, but it's just I was down for the exploitation. But the thing was, Mike Nichols represented a kind of comedic storytelling with bite, and it's sexy, but it's literate, and it's kind of in a school with Sondheim and and the best of Broadway and stuff. So, like, this was a way of storytelling that I've fallen in love with, which was like the next horizon past rock writing. If I'd ever be able to write something... Like that, that would be, I mean, amazing. That's beyond my wildest dreams. Given your relationship with your mother, you must have loved the Nichols and May bit about his mother and the phone. Totally. The best. My nerves. The best. She loved it. We loved it. And it's, you know, Mike Nichols. And, you know, years later, when Almost Famous came out, he called and left a long answering machine message on our home phone that my mom heard, and it was like full circle. It was amazing. And he noticed the Nichols and May record that was in the movie. And that was like, you know, that was like a chapter closer. When, when Mike Nichols himself reaches through your voicemail <laughs> and says, I loved it, that was amazing. But that was a kind of a storytelling that I, I thought later as I started to like learn a little bit about screenwriting – If I could tell a story about discovering music, the way music can change your life and your family and everything, and not necessarily be all about sex and drugs and, you know, all the easily stereotyped aspects of rock. If you can tell a love story about music in that tone, well, that would be the way to tell that story. So years later, I felt like I might have been able to tell it, you know. Ricky Fedora was kind of the first attempt at telling that story, and it was the wrong approach, but it it was cathartic and really fun to write it. It was a finished script called Ricky Fedora, and the idea was, was a little bit based on Peter Frampton and watching the career of Peter Frampton, and also knowing that David Bowie was a great actor, and I wanted to write a part for Bowie, and I wanted to direct Bowie, and I thought, okay, I have the part. And he is one of the early rock publicists based on a guy that I knew called Russ Shaw. 
And Russ was a guy who's kind of like a Broadway Danny Rose type guy. Closeted. His life was his clients. He fell in love with his artists. One of the first guys to uh, lose his life to AIDS that I had ever known or heard of. And um, his life was music. And I liked that role for David Bowie. And Penny Lane is a small character in it because Penny Lane falls in love with Ricky Fedora. They live together for a while. Uh, that was the great love of Ricky Fedora's life. And um, I play a tiny part in it as a reporter writing about Ricky Fedora in the heyday. So what happened was over time, Austin Powers came out. And I think the idea of Ricky Fedora was English. The idea of like a foppish British rock star suddenly was like a comical thing, too comical. It was too Austin Powers. So I thought, let's flip it. Let's make it an American band, which nobody ever really stereotypes rock as an American band. It's always a British band that they make fun of. So I was like, let's make it an American band from Troy, Michigan. Base it a little bit on Glenn Fry and the Eagles and that early feel that was around them. And uh, let's flip it. On a practical note, Fry also shared with Young Crow the key to holding a drinking buzz, which Crow detailed both in Rolling Stone and in his almost famous screenplay. If you want to craft a buzz correctly, he explained, you walk into a party, you drink two beers quickly, then you drink a beer every hour and 15 minutes after that. You'll always have a buzz and you'll never get too embarrassed. Let's tell the story you know, in another way, make the me character kind of a Truffaut-esque, because I love the films of Truffaut, like a kind of an Antoine Duenel, like the character you identify with. It's like your window character. So the more I wrote it, the more it became about my family. And that was the breakthrough for Almost Famous, that music at its best does change your family, does change that dynamic, does change your life. And the whole idea and the potential of the movie and the story opened up for me. The only sad part of that is I had no part for David Bowie. So when I last saw David Bowie, <laughs> it was at an almost famous event. And um, I was able to tell him that the whole thing began with me wanting to write a part for him that he could play. What did he say? He said, well, write me another one. And um, yeah, I was trying to do that when he died. While writing Almost Famous, Cameron would learn that writing about an entirely fictitious world can be much easier, ironically enough, than setting a story in some very familiar milieu closely linked to your own life. As he proceeded, both Cameron's mother Alice and his then-wife Nancy grew frustrated at the overly courtly pace of his writing. The result, they believed, of Cameron having too little faith in himself and too much determination to be a perfectionist. Perhaps the real reason for the long gestation period is that it's almost always more difficult to write what's deeply personal. That, in many ways, can be the toughest gig of all. I want to talk about when you were developing the script, it was somewhat of a protracted saga for you. Both Nancy and I saw a couple of quotes from your mother were kind of your support group. But also, at one point, Nancy, she used the word frustrated because she felt like why didn't you have the confidence in yourself that she had and that your mom had to do this? So could you just talk for a moment about some of those hurdles that you went through, even though people might think, well, it's semi-autographical. You got this, you know it, but yet it's not that simple. Yeah, I mean, it's a really strong question. 
I think every writer kind of has that committee in their brain who can, you know, gather to tell you your idea is not the greatest idea in the world. Like every writer has that committee, I think. And how well you silence the committee is how well you do in terms of like getting work done. And, you know, the worry was, is it too self-reflective? Is it too much the writer telling you a story about what it is being a writer as he's telling you the story about what it is being a writer. You know, it's kind of like you could conceivably say, well, your head's going to just be way up your ass writing about yourself in the process of writing. Raised in the Seattle suburb of Bellevue, Nancy Wilson began playing music as a teenager. During college, she joined her sister Anne, who had recently begun tenure as the lead singer with Heart, leading them to become the first hard rock band fronted by women. Hart began releasing albums in the late 70s that included Dreamboat Annie, Little Queen, Heart, and Bad Animals, yielding hit singles like Magic Man, Barracuda, and of course, Crazy on You. The group would sell more than 35 million records. The guitar manufacturer Gibson ranked Nancy Wilson the eighth greatest female guitarist of all time. In 1981, Wilson's friend Kelly Curtis introduced her to Cameron Crowe, and the two were married on July 27, 1986. They had twin boys in 2000 and divorced in 2010. Yes, I was around for the writing of the script the whole time. <laughs> when Cameron was writing that script, I was, you know, there with him because we were together at the time. And so it was really quite, you know, kind of a collaborative process because a lot of my story uh, really matched up with a lot of his story since I was in a rock band <laughs> and he was interviewing and traveling with rock bands. And so there was all kinds of, you know, luscious detail that we got into as far as scene setting and, you know, all of the rich details of the rock life that needed to be authentic in this case, since usually it's really inauthentic in any films that try to portray the reality of the rock and roll life. So, yeah, we had a lot of fun, you know, kind of putting all the stuff together and just the way people speak in that era. There was a lot of slang that only happened around that time, stuff like that, that we got very excited about, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, we had a, a really creative and collaborative time around that script. There was a definite issue with him trying to finish anything, <laughs> finalizing and, and not going back and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and fixing, because it's like never perfect. I would always tell him, you know, you have to embrace what it is and let it go, <laughs> because, you know, it's never going to be exactly the best thing you ever did, maybe. But in the case of Almost Famous, I think it really was the best thing he ever did. Through a lot of periods of reading it out loud with Nancy or discussing it with my mom, it became obviously a story about family and loving music and unapologetically loving music, saying it's okay to be 15 or 16 and compromise values and, you know, moral landmines are, are going off all around you, but you are protected in a way because of your family and how much you love this music. 
And that's what kept me going because if I had like one credit in my back pocket because of Jerry Maguire, I wanted to spend it loving music. And you can see like Francis, that spirit walks in the door and says, I'll play this part. I will be in your love letter to music, Cameron. That was the note she sent me. And I can't imagine this working without her. And the people with the right attitude towards music and life gathered to make the movie. And having the confidence to believe in it allowed them to feel confident enough to step in. But it was a little bit of a process. I mean, you write about your family. Are you being too rose-colored glasses? How truthful are you being? And the fact is, Almost Famous is very truthful about my family and the empty chair that's in the living room that represents the father. A big part of that story. You know, um, you have Pet Sounds as the first album that we see when William goes under the bed and looks through it. And it's obviously one of the great albums of all time. And I think you have described it and others. It's a sweet and sad yeah. album. Yeah, and I yeah, yeah. love both of those things about it, which is why I love Joni and I love Pet Sounds. But in a way, I just thought it was so fitting that Pet Sounds is the first album that we see in that stack because Sweet and Sad is also part of what Almost Famous wants to be at various times. Does that make sense to you? Big time. Big time. There was a Spanish movie, Mexican movie, called Bread and Chocolate. And um, it was one of the things we really agreed on in my family, my dad, my mom, and me, that to make a movie like Bread and Chocolate that gives you the joy and the pain of life is everything. And that's what I try and do every time. And that's for sure that's almost famous. It's a happy, sad feeling, like Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds is a happy, sad masterpiece. So to like punch at even close to that weight is the dream. And that's what Almost Famous is. For quite some time, it was, wasn't Almost Famous. You actually had it as untitled. Yeah. Some people were suggesting that because it was your fourth film and Led Zeppelin's fourth album was yeah. untitled. Yeah. Is there any truth to that? Is that why you were- Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, that was okay. one of the things we wanted to go for. <laughs> untitled. And the fourth album is always a thing, you know, as the third album is. Third album is trying to, like, put the sophomore effort in your rearview mirror. You know, the fourth album is like, okay, I'm doing this. This is my life. And it's where you get a little more freedom. You can be slightly obscure. Hopefully, you know, people follow you there. But I liked the idea that there was going to be a music reference at every turn and Almost Famous, and that was like Led Zeppelin had the untitled album. Cameron said that you were kind enough when the studio refused to call it untitled to send him a note with some possible titles. I, How did you get pr- this? Print, <laughs> oh my some. gosh. They're handwritten. This I is mean, my handwriting. You, you put some me. time into this. I gave him 13. Lucky number 13. Oh, there's a couple. 11 and a half, 12 and a half. <laughs> I thought he'd laugh at that. Oh, that's right. I get, we have one, one and a half, two, two and a half. Okay, I see what I did. Oh my God, I haven't seen this. Can you share a couple of those with us? Some of them are good, I think. Gather No Moss is not bad. It's like rock and roll, like Rolling right, Stones. Right. Rolling Stone gathers no, uh, Gather No Moss. I'm With the Band, I thought it could be good. The Kids With Us, not bad. What Music Can Do, that's terrible. That sounds like uh, like a really recent Beach Boys song. Or something. <laughs> what Music Can Do, la la la, what Music Can Do. Um, 
That's kind of sound like Elvis Costello. What music can do? <laughs> Let me see. Vinyl reality. What the heck was I talking about there? I was wow. kind of ahead of my time there. Way ahead of your time. Uh, the flip side Nokia was going to get. The 33 and a third incher. <laughs> All right. These, that's pretty bad. <laughs> oh, doing it was a joke that we had. Me and Jason thought we were going to get a spinoff from this movie if it went well. And we do like a buddy movie, like a road trip movie called Doing It. When did you know that? That you were at least satisfied with the script enough to start thinking about casting and start mm. showing around. Good question. I don't know. I think there just reaches a point where you're you have a little voice inside that says, "That's how it should feel." I showed it to Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald, who I was working with at DreamWorks. We went for a walk, and they said, "This is great. Let's make it." Next up on Origins Chapter 6, Almost Famous Turns 20, Episode 3, Rock School. The cast begins rehearsals, and Nancy Wilson and Peter Frampton open their rock school. For Origins, this is Jim Miller. Onward. This has been a production of Cadence 13, executive produced by me, Jim Miller, and my valued colleague, Chris Corcoran, who kicks ass running all content for Cadence. I do the writing and reporting for Origins, but the actual podcast is produced, edited, and mastered by my brother-in-arms, Chris Basil, a legend. Our producer and engineer is Terrence Malingo, who always makes the studio feel like home. And I also want to send a shout out to our marketing slash PR team, Josephina Francis, Hilary Schuff, and Kurt Courtney, along with Lizzie Denahan and the rest of the sales team. Corny as it may sound, I'm damn lucky to have all these people on Team Origins. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.